The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Murder Bookies! Welcome back to our Murder Shelf Book Club podcast, and thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you appreciating us. So please, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. That's Murder Shelf Book Club, or via email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. If you're able to leave us a five-star review, especially on Apple Podcasts, please do so as it will keep us trucking along and move us up in the chart so we can keep on delivering stellar content to you. The pandemic is ongoing, and we are still in quarantine like all of you. So forgive us if the audio is not 100%. We are still staying home and recording remotely to stem the spread of COVID-19. So everyone, stay safe, stay healthy, and practice social distancing by listening to us, as well as your other favorite podcasts. Now, on with the show. Cuddle up a little closer, love Hi, this is our second cast where we pull on those wayward threads that we didn't get to fully discuss in our first episodes of our series on Elizabeth Kendall's The Phantom Prince. Not wanting these episodes to be just another Ted Bundy series, we prefer to remember the women who were lost to their families and to us all. We will never know what they could have been, could have accomplished, what music written, scientific wonders discovered, lives saved through nursing, children taught. Their futures were denied them. We can learn all about who they were before they were tragically taken. So our focus is going to be largely there. However, we're not letting Tim Bunny off the hook. Sadly, he is part of their stories in all his awfulness. But to us, Ted Bundy isn't sexy or cute or a brilliant law student. Ted is a sick, twisted, perverted, psychopath, murdering pedophile. There you are. So never forget that and who he truly was. All right. So hopefully y'all have a drink. We are in book club <laughs> still, but we're, we're definitely covering something that we didn't really get too far into. And these are the women who are the unfortunate victims of Ted Bundy. So we're going to start off with his first attack in January 1974 with Karen Sparks Epley. She was 18 years old from Seattle and studying political science at the University of Washington. Karen loved to dance and enjoyed the new freedom that young women were gaining in the early 1970s. She lived with three really good friends from high school, all guys, which was somewhat unusual for the times. They were a layer of security. Karen worked the night shift and the swing shift, so her schedule was fairly erratic. She enjoyed reading and did so when laying in bed at night. One such night, she recalled thinking she saw some guy peeping in her window. Nothing came from it, so she let it go. But now we definitely really wonder. Yeah, I have to wonder, too. Oh, definitely. If you're peeping in someone's window, we know it's you, Ted. Mm-hmm. So on January 4th, 1974, a friend Chuck was visiting, and his cot was located outside of Karen's basement bedroom in the hall. However, Chuck's presence didn't stop someone from breaking into the apartment and entering Karen's room. 
The assailant grabbed a piece of the bed frame, bludgeoning her, shattering the left side of her skull. Her attacker then took the frame and slammed it up into her vagina, splitting her bladder in half. Karen's blood soaked the mattress as he ransacked the room, then slipped away into the dark. The next morning, her roommate Bob Lopez hadn't seen Karen yet, but given her crazy schedule, thought she still might be sleeping. After 18 to 20 hours of not having seen her, he came down to check on her and saw her drenched in her own blood. He called for help, then called her parents. Getting her to the hospital, at first it was doubtful that Karen was even going to survive. She did show some improvement, and then there was a debate about putting her in a nursing home versus keeping her home with some nursing staff. But Karen awoke in the hospital about 10 days later and realized that something really serious had happened. And asking her dad, he said that she'd had a little bump on the head. Don't you love dads? Oh, dad. Oh, so Karen would be in the hospital for a month, recovering from the immediate injuries of the vicious assault. The attack left Karen with aphasia, which is a language disorder, equilibrium difficulties, and epileptic fits. Now, these were overcome with a year of physical therapy, speech therapy. She had to literally learn to walk and talk again. Permanent injuries would include losing 50% of her hearing, 40% of her sight, with a constant tinnitus roaring in her ears. Ted Bundy had attacked Karen. They realized later that with Chuck sleeping in the hall, this would stop Bundy from hauling Karen off as he would other victims. Instead, he just left her for dead. Weird fact, in a 2019 phone conversation with Captain Borax, Karen revealed that she was at Lake Shamamish the day that Janice Ott and Denise Naslin That's would disappear. So weird. Isn't that wild? That's very weird. Oh, Karen recently spoke about this attack in the documentary Ted Bundy Falling for a Killer. She believes that women who were assaulted are survivors, and in that era, they had been taught to, you know, get on with it. She feels very fortunate that she's had a wonderful life, a terrific husband and family, and she appreciates every moment more than she did prior to the attack. And her lesson, enjoy every moment. You just don't know. Yeah, and she's definitely lucky to have survived that attack because that was just a brutal and vicious assault. She was touching base there. I'm glad she finally decided to do an interview because you said she did overcome so many things. She came back from what could have been completely devastating, physical and emotional. Well, what she said in the interview was that she has no memory of the attack, so she really doesn't have like post-traumatic stress. That's a good thing. It's a blessing. She's had a wonderful life, and she doesn't think about Ted Bundy. Good. Good. That's a good thing. Yeah. So, our second attack happened in February of 1974. Linda Healy grew up in an upper-middle-class suburb with her folks, James and Joyce Healy, and her two siblings. Linda was an avid, talented photographer, her camera always with her, documenting the good times. She also loved to sing, and she joined the chorus at school. Upbeat and fun-loving, her childhood friend Joanne Testa said that when Linda walked into a room, she lit it up. They would chatter about what they wanted to be where they wanted to go, and always optimistic about what laid ahead of them. Linda was attending the University of Washington, majoring in psychology, enjoying working with children with disabilities. And she was living with four roommates in an off-campus house. Here's a fun and interesting fact. An interesting coincidence, Ted Bundy's cousin, Edna Cowell, 
was also attending the University of Washington and had lived with two of Linda's roommates. So two out of the four, his cousin lived with two. Oh, wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. This is a second coincidence. Go figure. The night Linda disappeared, she and her roommates walked to Dante's Tavern to have a few beers. Linda had been lively, fun, and in good spirits, and they returned home at about 9.45 p.m., fairly early, but I know some of them had to catch the bus. Later, Joanne recalled that while returning to the house, she noticed a man walking up the street behind them. Joanne locked the front door once they were all inside. Settling in for the night, Joanne and Linda chatted about being Linda's week to cook, and her parents and her brother were coming to dinner the next evening. Now, Linda worked for the Northwest Ski Report doing the weather broadcast each morning, so she always got up really early. So by 11.30, Linda was downstairs in her basement bedroom and called her boyfriend. Joanne remained in the kitchen for another eh, 20, 30 minutes before heading downstairs. She locked the side door and then went to sleep. Now, knowing what's about to happen, we have to assume it was Bundy that Karen saw outside. If she saw him, then he'd seen her too. He slipped around the side of the house, found the basement door unlocked, and went into Linda's room, and there he waited. So now Friday morning, February 1st, 1974, Linda's alarm is going off, and it doesn't stop. Joanne enters Linda's room to shut it off. Linda's bed is made perfectly. She must have forgotten to turn the alarm off and left for work. So about 7 a.m., the radio station calls and asks, where's Linda? She hadn't shown up to work. No one knew where she might have been. And the day goes on, and it's not until about 3 p.m. that her friends and roommates start comparing notes, and they realize that no one has seen Linda since 11.30 the night before. Her parents are due for dinner at 6 p.m. Oh my gosh, Linda's missing. What's going on? They called Joyce Healy immediately. And when the police come to investigate, nothing really appears out of the ordinary. Everything looks fine. But it takes one police officer to pull a sheet off from the bed, which no one had thought to do previously. And there's some blood on Linda's pillow. Uh-oh. So he pulls the bed sheets back a little bit more and finds blood in a significant amount of blood. Upon further search of the room, they find her nightgown neatly hung up in the closet, also covered in blood. A pair of jeans, her shirt, a pair of shoes, those were missing. So someone had entered her room, caused significant injury due to the amount of blood that was there, managed to change her clothing, and then make her bed. Someone had been there for a long, long time. How long? And, And finally, the perpetrator left through the side door with Linda in tow, presumably unconscious or dead. And no one had any sense of the horror of it. Not yet. In 1975, probably about a year later, part of Linda's skeletal remains were found on Taylor Mountain, the dumping ground for a brutal serial killer. Linda Ann Healy was 21 when she was murdered by Ted Bundy, and a light went out in the Healy family that February 1974. Yeah. So that's February. Now we're into March of 1974. And that'll be when the third attack occurs. Donna Gail Manson was born to Marie and Lyle Manson on July 9, 1954. They raised their shy little girl in Olympia, Washington with her brother James. And born into a talented family of professional musicians, Donna would practice regularly and became an excellent flute player. In addition to working in the music departments at local schools, 
her parents also played with the Seattle Philharmonic Orchestra. A challenge, Donna's shyness would eventually develop into an anxiety and depression disorder as she grew older, but she was known for writing poetry when she was blue, and this was really an outlet for her. She persevered. She applied to the Green River Community College and then transferred to Evergreen State College. Donna had decided to major in English, and she was going to teach after graduation. A free spirit, Donna was interested in alchemy. Ah. I love that. And she Yeah, right? And she had registered for classes in witchcraft and the occult. Where were these classes when I was in college? I know. The satanic panic ruined everything. It did. Uh, really. But she's described as someone who would run into an old friend, stay up all night chatting, walk home at 5 a.m., admire the strikingly beautiful moon in the sky, and then wait to watch the gorgeous sunrise. You know, she just seems to be concerned and connected to her environment. One who would stop and smell the roses and enjoy the chirping birds. Yeah, and it sounds like she's really in tune with the present. Even with that anxiety and depression, that's definitely something that's very hard to be aware of is the present. I bet she found that soothing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know I I would. would. I, I mean, when I take my dog for walks in the middle of the night, I find that to be very soothing to myself. Yeah. And then yeah. something moves and I freak out because of what I know is out there. But, you know, that's another story. We're two primers. <laughs> so at college, Donna's friends described her as an introvert who enjoyed partying and weed. She would occasionally disappear for days, sometimes even weeks, impulsively catching a bus and traveling wherever the wind blew. Wish my life was so easy sometimes. So she attended classes somewhat irregularly. That she failed to alert family or roommates to her spontaneous traveling drove them all a little bit nuts, as you imagine. And then there's no cell phones during this time, so staying in touch is probably definitely a little bit harder. And this habit contributed to her friend Deanna Ray not reporting her missing until a week after her disappearance on March 12, 1974. Her parents had posters made immediately upon learning their child was missing, but to no avail. Another unfortunate victim to be left behind on Taylor Mountain, Ted Bunny confessed to killing Donna and beheading her. Sickeningly enough, he burned her head down to the last ash in Liz's fireplace. Is that even possible? Maybe a cremator, but a fireplace? I don't know. We know Ted was a liar, a manipulator, a monster. So he could have been making up. It could have happened, for all we know. Who knows? But unfortunately, law enforcement botched Donna's subsequent investigation, and the unidentified remains that were found were purged from the sheriff's property room. So this actually remains an open case, though we believe Donna was savagely killed by Bundy five weeks after Linda Healy. Yeah. Yeah, free spirit. Shame. Such a Mm -hmm. shame. So up in Anchorage, Alaska, on October 12, 1955, Vivian Rancourt gave birth to Susan Rancourt, making her husband Dale a proud father, with Sister Judy rounding out the family. Susan was a sponge that absorbed knowledge. She loved to read, thriving in the classroom, forever pursuing new challenges. Her mother described how she would clean under her bed and find all Susan's papers from every year of school, organized neatly into piles. I can imagine cleaning under the bed year after year, first grade, second grade, third grade, you know, you get into high school, piles upon piles. 
Judy's sister remembers Susan as always smiling and upbeat. So, going off to college at Central Washington State, she was truly in her element, maintaining a 4.0 GPA as a bio major. That's hard. Yeah. That's really hard. Oh, yeah. That's, that's not easy at all. Organic chemistry drives them all crazy. Susan volunteered with the campus police and then became part of the residence assistance group. She was actually attending a residence meeting in the library when she disappeared on April 17th, about a month after Donna Manson disappeared. Susan never made it back to her dorm. The next morning, her roommate realized that Susan hadn't come home the night before, which was very un-Susan-like because she's really responsible and reliable. Oh, being an RA, you definitely have to be. Right. So her parents came down immediately knowing something was wrong. And Dale screaming at the police, my daughter is missing, something has happened. And from the police to the Boy Scouts, this huge search is organized, even including a friend with an airplane. Now we know Susan wore a bright yellow ski jacket, so maybe it could be spotted from the air. Hence, a plane is definitely very useful. Covers a large area very quickly. Oh, absolutely. Campus police officer Cheryl Martin commented that it was like pulling rusty old nails out of an old tree to get cooperation from departments. Shocker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No evidence. Nothing was collected. Officer Martin heard a rumor of a man with bandages approaching girls at the library asking for help. She believed that Susan encountered this man agreeing to help him. He'd know human vulnerabilities, picking up on Susan's desire to nurture her caring and desire to help a wounded person, and it cost her her life. Like Linda Healy, some of Susan's skeletal remains were found on Taylor Mountain a year later, and she was just 19 years old when Ted Bundy took her life. Yeah. So moving into May 1974, Roberta Kathleen Parks was born to Catherine and Charles Parks on February 24th, 1954, and was welcomed by big sisters Sharon and Susan. Called Kathy, They all grew up in Lafayette, California, and after high school, Kathy first attended Diablo Valley College before transferring to Oregon State University. There, she majored in world religions and education. Now, demure, reserved, Kathy was an introspective and complicated young lady. She had a boyfriend, Christy McPhee, who was a scuba dive instructor, and Christy and Kathy were completely crazy about each other. They had lived together in a small apartment for about six months. But as much as she cared for Christy, Kathy did not want to just settle. She was eager to go out in the world. She wanted to see what she would accomplish. And she was not at all sure that it was OSU or Christy that this is where she wanted to be, that this was a good fit. So she's at a crossroads. She is mulling over what she wants to do with her life. You know, these serious questions left her cutting classes, drinking more than she should, and her roommate, Miriam Schmidt, said that she did appear somewhat depressed. Yeah, definitely. It sounds a little bit like depression. Yeah. But that's what happens when you try to figure out your life and you have a lot of things that you care about, and you just don't know how those pieces fit. Trying to figure out what is really what you want to do with your life. And so a friend of Kathy's, Joanne Stevens, said that Kathy used walks to clear her head and would walk around campus at night. She'd often leave Sackett Hall dorm and head over to the Memorial Union Commons to get a late night snack from the cafeteria. I remember those days. Oh, so yeah. I'd be walking over there, too, mm-hmm. to clear my head and get oh, a little yeah. snack. 
On the morning of May 6, 1974, Kathy's older sister Sharon called to tell her that their dad Charles had suffered a heart attack. He was stable and doing all right, so she didn't need to come home. Remember, their family's in California, so it was a little bit of a travel for her. Sharon promised to keep her apprised of anything new. And later that night, Sharon's husband Paul called and spoke with Kathy to say her dad's condition had stabilized. And according to Kevin Sullivan's The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive Guide, Kathy wrote a letter to Christy that night. It read, I'm feeling down right now due to a combination of things, I suppose. To tell you the truth, I don't even feel like finishing this letter. I think I'll go walk around outside a while. And at the end of the letter, she wrote, I'm looking forward to seeing you very much. When you come, please put your arms around me and make me feel everything is okay. I'm needing the comfort of your presence now. I love you, Kathy. And she dropped the letter in the mail, not knowing it would be the last letter she would ever write. Oh, that poor thing. All right. Well, Kathy and roommate Miriam planned to go visit some students down the hall. But guess what? As usual, Kathy was hungry and told Miriam, you know, go without me. And she sets off to go to the cafeteria. Now, another friend, Lorraine Fargo, runs into Kathy on her way to the cafeteria. And Lorraine would tell the police that Kathy just seemed dazed. She just was out of it. And, yeah. And Kathy said, you know, she wanted to be on her own. She didn't want obligations. She didn't want to get married. She just knew what she didn't want, but she really didn't know what she wanted. And Lorraine begs Kathy to come back and talk with her, but Kathy declines. Now, a side note here. Lorraine would also tell police that a man had been following her around the library that night, attempting to strike up a conversation. Had Ted followed Lorraine over to the cafeteria and upon seeing Kathy, determined that she was a better prospect? We just don't know. I'm sure it's probably the truth, though. Well, we know how he operates. He felt comfortable on a college campus. These are his hunting grounds. And with that radar that psychopaths seem to possess, if he picked up on Kathy's distress and her vulnerability, he'd run some kind of ruse and he'd manage to get Kathy to go with him, overpower her, drive to some private location where he was free to assault, abuse, beat, rape, sodomize, and murder her. And then he'd have sex with her corpse as much as he'd like. She was 22 years old when she died. A jawbone was located after an intensive search of Taylor Mountain, and Kathy's dentist was able to identify that jawbone as hers. A jawbone. We're, we're lucky to have found even some pieces of these women up there, because the animals did a lot of, of pet dirty work for them. They did. Now we're moving on to May 1974, and if you're following along with us, you know that these are escalating quickly every month. So far, 1974. Mm -hmm. So we come to Brenda Carroll Ball, who is described as a free and fun-loving spirit. Her mother, Rosemary Arnaud, adored her daughter and would never recover from her loss. No. The night before Bundy's execution was difficult for Brenda's mom, and she stayed up all night tossing and turning, anticipating hearing that the man who killed her 22-year-old daughter was finally dead. And she said, How do I feel? My first reaction was, thank God, but then it, it doesn't bring her back. It's something you never get over. No matter how busy you are, there's never a time when she isn't on your mind. Brenda had gone to a local hangout called the Flame Tavern in Bury in Washington, and she went by herself, and this was on May 31st, 1974. She was a regular. She had a number of friends among the local patrons, 
friends, and they were happy to see the upbeat, pretty Brenda join them. Later on, a witness said that he saw Brenda in the tavern's parking lot speaking to a man who had his arm in a sling. One can only speculate that it was Ted Bundy. And then he bashed her skull in with a crowbar at some point during their conversation, proceeded to take her someplace private, where he violated her still-warm body and dumping her on Taylor Fallon. Much like Donna Manson, it wasn't unusual for Brenda to go unseen for some time, and she wasn't reported missing until two weeks after Ted Bundy had already taken her life. And that was the second time in May 1974. He killed twice. Georgianne Hawkins. She grew up in Tacoma, Washington, where her mother, Edie, described her as a wiggle worm. Her report cards used to indicate that. You know, when you had those handwritten report cards back in the day, and the teacher would sit there and say, she's a wonderful student, but she's a wiggle worm. She loved to talk, as, like I said, as every report card indicated without fail. That's one reason that Edie nicknamed her daughter the Pied Piper. I like it. Track all these friends following her. Georgianne was a cheerleader. However, she didn't just belong to the cheerleader clique. Georgianne had friends across all the high school groups. At 93, her mother would say with a touch of pride in her 2014 interview with Dan Scherer that she was a self-confident little girl. She wasn't vain. She wasn't arrogant. And she wasn't snooty. And that's why all the kids liked her. So born to Edie and Warren Hawkins on August 20th, 1955, big sister Patty was five years old and thrilled to have a baby sister. Georgianne joined the Brownies, learning how to swim early, and she took to it like a fish. She won a competitive AAU swimming medal, very competitive, until she discovered boys, according to her mom. Damn boys. Damn boys, right? Georgianne would become part of the royal court of the Washington State Daffodil Festival. This is a huge deal in Washington State. Traveling with the other princesses, she attended concerts, rode in parades, signed autographs at charity events. Edie said her daughter learned a great deal about life and people and everything through that. It was a wonderful experience for her daughter. Sounds like a good thing to be a part of. Yeah, wonderful. It's still going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, A long, long time it's been going on. 87 years. And when it came to college, Georgianne planned to study TV journalism. Her parents would pay for books, room and board, plus tuition, but the rest was up to Georgianne. Responsible, studious, and eager, she got a job and worked to save money. She also became a sorority sister for Kappa Alpha Theta, and was as enthusiastic about it as she was everything else she did. And she absolutely thrived in college. And in the early hours of June 11th, 1974, Georgianne stopped to see her boyfriend Marvin Gillatley at a frat house, chatting through the window for a bit. Nice chatting through a window, I guess. And, and then headed toward her sorority along Greek Road to study for her Spanish final the next day. And unfortunately, she wouldn't make it there. No. Nope. Now, the father of a sorority sister was a journalist. And he put together that there were now six young women who had vanished since January. And that was before independent law enforcement agencies made the connection. Intra-agency cooperation was all too rare in the 70s, as we have pointed out many times before. It's a real pet peeve for us, if you haven't noticed. Yeah, it really pisses us off big time. Every damn time. Yep. And we don't necessarily want to blame law enforcement, but if they cooperated a little bit more, maybe more things would happen. As a result, Jordan's body was never found. 
Buddy confessed that he used crutches to lure Jordan into helping him to his car, struck her, and carried her off. He strangled her and cut off her head with a hacksaw. He, unfortunately, visited her corpse and had sex with the body multiple times until the decomposition became even too much for him. Her parents backed away from their daughter's case as a survival mechanism. And Edie would go on to say, I was very, very angry and very bitter. And ever the mom, she remembers how her daughter lived and that she was much, much more than a victim. And that's why we're doing this episode. Yeah. So just just four weeks after George Ann Hawkins disappeared from Seattle, two young women would vanish in front of 40,000 people at Lake Sammamish on July 14th, 1974. The brazenness of this freaking dude. Oh, God, it just drives me nuts. Janice Ott was one of them. She was born on Valentine's Day in 1951 to Don and Feral Blackburn, who doted on their bubbly daughter. In high school, Jan was a girls' league secretary, as well as a sweetheart candidate for the annual school dance. Her father said she was a fine girl, everything her mother and I would want in a daughter. Good friend Nappy Hughes said, Jan was always the life of the party. And here comes another weird fact. Ironically, during high school, Jan dated Denny Rancourt, the brother of Susan Rancourt, the one who was already murdered by Ted Bundy. So Jan and Susan actually knew each other. There's so many crazy coincidences. And, you know, normally that would be useful in a police investigation, but had nothing. Now that we know nothing, absolutely whatsoever, anything. If they had a, a, a Facebook search, it would have meant nothing. Yeah these, yeah, these coincidences are absolutely crazy, though. Yeah. So 23-year-old Jan was compassionate. She <laughs> had a degree in social work from Eastern Washington University and was employed as a probation caseworker for the King County Youth Services in Seattle. Now, she believed her experience, coupled with her kind personality, could really help people to change for the better. In 1972, she married James Ott, and in 1974, Jim was in California attending medical school, while Jan had a roommate in Issaquah. So they allowed each other a great deal of freedom in their relationship, because they really valued their independence. Now, recently she had been missing Jim quite a bit, and it was their habit to speak on the phone at 10 p.m. each night. So the day she vanished, Jan left a note for her roommate saying that she'd be home by 4 p.m. She got her tiger bike, got her stuff, and headed to the park. Now, witnesses say she agreed to assist a man with his arm in a sling. Who's that? Now, who's this guy, right? Jim Ott remarked to news reporters that the night Jan vanished, she had missed their 10 p.m. phone call, and he wound up sleeping by the phone that night, waking from a dream, and the one word that Jan said was Jim. She called his name. Now, workers would later discover Jan's remains in a wooden area that Ted Bundy had used as a body dump. He confessed to her murder, as he had so many others. Jan's father said it has been a nightmare and it doesn't get any better right before Bundy's execution. The Blackburns did support the death penalty. I view him pretty much as a cancer that needs to be removed. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. And Ted Bundy was definitely not satisfied with stealing just Janice out away that day, July 14, 1974. He would go on to abduct a second young woman, Denise Nasland. Denise woke up from a nap along the shoreline of Lake Sammamish. 
saw her boyfriend Kenneth Little sleeping, got up, chatted with a friend, and went to use the bathroom. She wouldn't return. Later, as Bundy would abduct Denise the same way as Janice Ott and then murder her. Eleanor and Robert Naslin welcomed their daughter Denise on January 1st, 1955. Though they would soon divorce, Denise would grow up with much love and warmth. Eleanor Rose Bozich described Denise as being in no hurry to marry. She loved life and was eager to embrace living and traveling. Denise was enrolled in computer programming classes, striving to move beyond her current secretarial job when she vanished. Witnesses saw her speaking with a man who had a sling on his arm. And her mom didn't accept Denise's death, keeping her bedroom exactly as it had been. She even kept Denise's 1964 Chevy, too. When part of Denise's skull was identified a year later, it was certainly a crushing blow to her mom. She would say, it's been difficult for me for a long time. And even 14 years after Denise's death, she would finally bury a coffin filled with photos, a crucifix, Denise's favorite dress, and items she held dear as the police had somehow managed to lose her remains in some sort of snafu that we unfortunately don't have much information about. Absolutely absurd and ridiculous. Beyond belief. It's bad enough that this poor woman has lost her daughter. She can't even bury her remains. Can't even imagine. And her mom, Eleanor, would actually die on Denise's birthday in 1999. And ironically enough, another weird fact is that Denise would occasionally party at the Flame Tavern, which was the last place that Brenda Ball was seen alive. Another freaky little coincidence there. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I wish I could tell you differently, but the attacks don't stop there. On July 4th, 1958, Connie and Herb G. Wilcox Jr. brought their daughter Nancy Wilcox into the world. Members of the LDS Church, the family regularly attended services and community events. Nancy was a sweet, loving girl and adored her siblings, David, Richard, Thomas, Patrick, and Susie. Louisa Paulson Greaves, a dear friend of hers, said that she was fun, mature for her age, and a really pretty girl who received a lot of attention from the boys. But that really didn't affect her, though. She was popular, but really tight with a small group of friends and her boyfriend, John, who was a football player. She was sweet, a little shy, sensitive, and kind. But Nancy was not a cheerleader, as many internet sites claim. Nancy was full of energy, bubbly, funny, according to her cousin Jamie. She, Jamie, and another cousin Heidi would sleep over grandma's, where they did each other's hair, shared each other's clothes. I used to do the same thing with my cousins. I'm like so relating to this. Nancy worked at the Arctic Circle drive-in as a waitress. And this was really strange, though. Evidently, Nancy mentioned this older guy to her mom and to Jamie, who had come into the drive-in and was kind of flirting with her. And he said he had gone to law school. But, you know, none of them gave any thought to this. With- Hindsight is twenty twenty. Well, oh. Who does that sound like? It sure sounds like Ted was scoping her out. Peeking in windows, showing up at the drive-in, it makes you wonder. But on the day uh, Nancy vanished, she was waiting for her boyfriend to come over, and she went out to buy some gum and disappeared. Mom called friends asking about Nancy when she didn't come back. She sent her son Tom out on his motorcycle to look for her. And what they later learned is that she had likely been abducted from a busy street, could have been the cross street at 3900 South 
from Arnett Street where Nancy lived. Bundy did confess that he had abducted Nancy at knife point, dragging her into a nearby orchard. He ordered her to take off all her clothes, and she argued with him, not, you know, really believing that he would hurt her, and he strangled her, silencing her forever. He then sexually assaulted her, evidently returning to repeat the act over and over over the next few days. In another version of his confession, he said he killed her in an apartment and then dumped her body near the Capitol Reef National Park. Nancy's mother, on hearing that Ted confessed, said he deserves to die and should have died a long time ago. Not to mince words, but I kind of feel like he went with the second version because the knife point thing and killing her that way without striking her over the head doesn't seem Ted to me. But I could be wrong. I think he was just avoiding talking about necrophilia. Oh, yeah. I mean, eventually it comes out, but I don't think he wanted to admit that. The fact that he talked about that at all is very surprising, considering how much he didn't want to talk about it. Even if he did go with a second version, he probably went back to the park anyways. Well, there is ironically an orchard right there where those Mm -hmm. streets connect. Captain Borax has a lot of videos that are available on YouTube where you are in the car with him as he goes through the neighborhoods of these women. And it's incredible. I mean, it's from, you know, all these years and decades later. But you can get a sense of where they lived, where the abductions mm-hmm. could have taken place, where the orchard was. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Just like Paul Holes cruising around with Michelle McNamara. Yeah. really does. When you walk the walk, it is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, as we know, Bundy confessed to many murders just in an effort to try to squeeze out more time for himself. And he really didn't gain any time, but he did shatter the bittersweet denial that Connie Wilcox clung to 15 years when they thought that this might not have happened to their daughter. And she said, I've kept everything to myself all these years. I not only refused to believe Bundy had taken my daughter, I refused to believe she was even dead. In 1990, 16 years after Nancy's death, Connie Wilcox said at Nancy's memorial service, I have never had a pleasant or comforting feeling about Nancy. It is a constant pain. Even when the phone rings on Mother's Day, Christmas, or her birthday, for a split second, I think she might be calling. And parents who had a child murdered or gone missing know the pain all all too well. And the nightmare created by Bundy never really ends for anyone involved. No. He's a monster. He is. He's an absolute monster. Continuing on, we're getting to our 11th attack in October 1974. And on July 4th, 1957, Melissa Smith was born to Mr. and Mrs. Louise Smith, who was a police officer in a small town of Midvale, Utah. Lewis had warned his precious daughter of the dangers of the world, and she needed to be cautious and careful, always. And Melissa took these words to heart. She was her father's pride and joy. And by the time Melissa was in her teens, she and her sister Jolene and some of their cousins would sneak out of the house in a while. But who hasn't? Honestly, who hasn't snuck out of the house? Everybody sneaks out of the house in their teens. It's kind of a rite of passage. Her father, who had become chief of police in Midvale, began to make this somewhat harder, much to her chagrin. And Melissa and Jolene were very proud of their dad. And now, Melissa was a person of great compassion. And when she had a phone call on October 18th, 1974, from a friend saying she was upset about her boyfriend, could Melissa meet her out at Pepperoni's restaurant? Of course. Of course she would. Bummed that she couldn't have the car, she set out on foot. 
she arrived at the popular restaurant discussing her distraught friend's love life, and they had some pizza and did everything 17-year-old girls would do. And then finally ready to head home, she called Jolene to let her know she was on her way, ever responsible. She never wanted anyone to worry about her. And about halfway home, she stopped in to say hello to some cousins, chatted, enjoying a quick catch-up. Finally, she continued walking back home. She had to go pick up some clothes for a slumber party over at another friend's house. However, it wasn't meant to be. Somewhere on that last leg of her walk home, Melissa Smith would vanish. That was the second in October. Three weeks later, deer hunters found Melissa's nude body discarded like trash. An autopsy showed that Melissa had been battered, hit over the head, probably that damn crow par again, raped and sodomized. Ted Bundy had shoved dirt and twigs into her vagina. It appears he may have touched up her makeup before dumping the body. Now, there's some medical evidence that he may have kept Melissa alive for some time, perhaps as long as a week. Thank God, it's unlikely that she was conscious at all with the skull fracture that she had received. Her funeral service was at 1 p.m. on October 30th, 1974, with Bishop Thomas W. Hacking officiating. After his daughter's death, Lewis Smith was simply devastated. In 2011, former police chief Tony Mason told KTVX ABC4 Salt Lake City reporter Kylie Conway that it impacted the entire department, that they'd go past the chief's office and see him staring into space, just crushed that he'd lost his little girl. A man sworn to uphold the law to protect and serve and he'd failed to protect his own child. The guilt would be fierce. But that—that uh-huh. that is horribly unfair. All right, who would predict that a monster like Ted Bundy would wander into little town of Midvale? The only one responsible for Melissa Smith's death is Ted Bundy. Now, I had a thought, because Melissa left the restaurant heading home to go to a slumber party. And she stops in at her cousin's to visit after 10 p.m. I think something creeped her out on that walk home. I think it was a car, a person, a stalker, something. And I think she thought, I'll duck in and whoever it is will leave me alone. And then I'll just head home and it'll be fine. And it wasn't because that's exactly what I would do. You could be absolutely right. And as we come to know, especially in Utah, Ted was actually fairly known like people have seen him around and i mean at this point i don't think he's spending too much time in utah but if he's going out on these drives if he's leaving the house when he's staying with liz or he's out there for some reason he might know some of the popular hangouts at this point be watching yeah i did read some accounts where he was supposed to have been identified at pepperonis so he may have identified her there followed her and then he followed her yeah it's a theory it's a theory so now we're getting to laura ann ames who was born in american fork utah on august 21st 1957 to james and charlene ames and from day one laura was considered a wonderful friend with a vivacious personality and unfortunately middle school was a turbulent time for laura it is for many but according to friend Marin Beveridge at age 13, Laura's parents threw her out of the house and she wound up living with them for a time. 
So turbulent for a lot, maybe not as turbulent, but definitely a very, very turbulent experience for Laura. Yeah. Mr. Beveridge's deal was Laura could stay, but she had to remain in school. And unfortunately, Laura did end up dropping out of high school, working small jobs and trying to find herself. She did, however, speak to her parents on a daily basis, but she was living with others. And Marin said that when she hit adversity, Laura chose to laugh about it and keep moving forward. She even remembered a time when they went hiking. They climbed up a cliff and they actually got stuck there when it got too dark to climb down. And they wound up staying up on top all night until the next day with Laura keeping the Oh my god. Spirit. <laughs> uh, I remember this actually happened to my friend's brother. We had no idea where he was. He had gone out hiking and luckily someone had noted that he signed into the trailhead and never came down. So he knew he was up there. Oh it my is gosh. snappy cell service, but he would be the one like Laura, keeping everyone entertained until they were able to get down. Yeah. It, it was an adventure, and this must have been as well. Marin actually recalled seeing Ted Bundy, who would come into a place called Mole Browns, where all the teens hung out. And it was actually called the Naughty Pines Cafe and Arcade, but nicknamed Mole Browns by all the locals. The owner's last name was Brown, and he had a large mole on his cheek. Can you mole imagine? Browns. Of original. course, they're teenagers. So what are they going to call the guy? Mo Brown. <laughs> so mean. These teenagers. They're be so mean. Of course they but, are. <laughs> very <laughs> creative, original. Why not? And, you know, they'd all go there. They'd hang out. They'd play pool or foosball in the back. And in an interview with Captain Borat, Marin said, Ted just showed up one day and didn't leave until after Laura was dead. Then he disappeared like two days later. Marin didn't trust Ted. And just by that statement alone, it, did he show up often? Maybe. Seems weird. But she said the hairs on the back of her neck would rise whenever he was around. And Ted seemed obsessed with watching Laura. And Laura, who'd been playing foosball, would curse at him, telling him he was breaking her concentration. And Laura was definitely a strong girl and no pushover. But one day, Ted even showed up to Marin's house in pursuit of Laura brushing past her brother to gain entry. So he literally pushed his way into the house. And Marin recalled saying, dude, what part of she doesn't want to be with you do you not get? And he was made to leave. Not asked, made. And I have never heard this story before. No, which I hadn't either. It leaves me to wonder, like, how much time was he spending elsewhere? It Even sounds, in the book. Sounds to me he did a lot more stalking of these people and his mm-hmm. is intended than I think I ever realized. Do you think it's more of a Utah thing as opposed to Seattle? Like, Utah Ted does seem a little bit different than Seattle Ted. Well, Seattle, I think he's figuring it out. Here, I think he's got his shtick down. But he's okay. doing his homework. Yeah. We know he's not going to class. <laughs> he's never he's in class. He's hour drive out to Colorado to clear his head, so, yeah. yeah. So we know he's not in class. I think he's spending a lot more time watching, stalking his victims. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like from what everybody's saying, he really was working this angle. Absolutely. And that maybe leads to his success rate. I mean, he'll listen, if the opportunity arises, he's going to take it. Mm-hmm. But he really is working on that trust factor. I'm such a good guy. I've been hanging around. Sure, I'll give you a ride. And he definitely had a type. Yeah. Definitely. Well, on that October 31st, when Laura disappeared, the group of teens had been partying hard 
It's Halloween, right? Uh, Laura decided to walk to Mo Brown's to get cigarettes because it would be closing around 11. And Marin didn't want her to go, but Laura insisted. Marin's sister, Vera Beveridge, who worked there, would later say she saw Laura get into Ted Bundy's VW. He may have offered to give her a ride back to the party, but no one ever saw Laura again. Her nude body would be found on Thanksgiving Day by Raymond Ivins near the Timp Caves between Salt Lake City and Provo. Bundy had bashed her in the face, shattered her jaw and skull with some kind of blunt instrument, committed... Uh Yeah, he committed anal and vaginal rape, and her vagina showed evidence of being punctured. She had a stocking tied around her neck, the cause of death being strangulation. He may have kept Laura for a time, because her hair appeared to have been recently shampooed. So just like Melissa Smith, who had the fresh makeup, maybe to hide the decomp so his necrophilia would be easier and last longer? That's what it sounds like. Just so everyone is aware, this is the Ted Bundy that is cute and the sex symbol. This is what he really does. He is not a folk hero sex symbol. He is a disgusting monster. Now, on the day of Bundy's execution, surely Amy would say he needs to die very badly. But she conceded at the last moment that waiting for the execution was pretty horrible. It made me feel guilty, despite all the things he did to my daughter and all those other girls. I started to think, how low am I waiting for a man to die? I still have this empty feeling. I'm sick to my stomach. It's an uptight, horrible feeling, but it's a relief to know he's gone and he won't do it again. And this was his third and final attack in October, and he's not close to stopping. Not even close. Nope. We're going to move to November 1974. This is the 13th attack. And Deborah Jean Kent, she's one of five children, born in Logan, Utah, on March 12, 1957, to Belva and Dean O. Kent. Compassionate and giving, Deborah was the kind of girl who slipped quarters in a stranger's expired parking meter she happened to notice were expired. That is a very nice thing to do, especially when you might not always have change. It's very kind and very considerate. She yeah. described just as that, and I thought about becoming a social worker after graduating from Beaumont High School in the spring of 1975. She was outgoing, a member of the school's drama club, and she loved ballet. And on November 8, 1974, she planned a family outing. Her father was recovering from a massive heart attack, and Deborah wanted to take the family out to see the high school's production of the musical The Redhead. It'd be his first time out since leaving the hospital, and they wanted to make it a good time. Her younger brother, Blair, had opted to go roller skating at the local rink with friends, and the boys were waiting to be picked up. Ever thoughtful, Deborah volunteered to go get him, since she'd already seen the show being part of the drama club. A weird fact. This keeps happening again and again. Yep. As ironically, another victim of Bundy's, who we're going to be discussing later, Susan Curtis, was attending the same play on that same evening. It seems that Deborah actually wasn't the initial target of whatever drove Ted Bundy to kill. Around 9 p.m., Ted tried to engage theater director Raylan Shepard to identify a car in the parking lot. She blew him off, offering her husband to help. At 9.45, Bundy tried to speak Kathy Ricks in the parking lot, asking if she knows some boy he's looking for. 
She said no, and she goes back inside to watch the play. And at about 9.50, a girl named Tammy Tingy said she saw a man playing Usher inside the lobby going in and out. And he would actually later be identified as Ted. And just about 10, 15 minutes later at 10.05 p.m., the play went into intermission and Deborah came out. By the time the play ended, recognizing that Deborah hadn't returned with Blair, Belva and Dean began to worry. They noticed the family car was still in the parking lot and that Debbie had never made it to the car because her purse was still locked inside. This is when the parents began to panic. Belva had this horrible gut feeling that Debbie was gone, and that feeling would never leave her. At first, the police dismissed Deborah's disappearance as a runaway. However, the family said, no, no, no. There is no way that she is going to abandon her father in the school parking lot in his weakened condition. So it's another thing that the police do. Oh, it's, it's a runaway. No. She's not oh. leaving her family in the parking lot. That's just not going to happen. So eventually they do start to investigate, and the only piece of evidence they find is this handcuff key on the sidewalk coming from the building. Ironically, it is going to match the handcuffs on Carol Durange, who had escaped a kidnapping attempt earlier that day by a man in a tan Volkswagen bug. As you know, we spoke a lot about Carol Durange in our first couple episodes because that was the main sticking point for Ted going to prison the first time. And Liz knows all about Carol Durange. Yeah. So when Ted is tried for the attempted kidnapping of Carol Durange, Belva, Deb's mom, is in court every day making Ted sweat. In a desperate news article, Belva said of Ted, he's a very charismatic man and he just floated around the courtroom like he owned the place. He's very arrogant. And in 1984, Deborah's older brother, Bill, was killed by a drunk driver in a tragic event that triggered the family to make a plot for Deborah as well, because it was time then to put her to rest. In 1989, the Kent family gathered for Ted's execution on that very somber morning. While they were pleased that justice was being carried out, Deborah's brother, Blair, said that for someone to lose their life, it's really unfortunate. It always is, but as we spoke about the death penalty briefly, monsters like this deserve to no, go. I have no problem with it under these circumstances at all. I wish he told us more, but he deserved to go. Yes. The Kents were told of Bundy's confession, hearing that he'd taken Debbie back to where he was living and kept her alive for a little while, possibly 12 hours. And we know from some serial killers that we've studied, this is extremely rare for keeping them for a long time. Yeah. He likely beat her, raped her, and then decapitated her, practicing his usual necrophilia. He actually admitted to admiring severed heads in his apartment before disposing of them. And at one point, he had a collection of four of them neatly displayed. The family reflected and found peace, even if they never found Deborah's body. And in 2015, DNA from a patella, which is the kneecap, found where he dumped a body did prove to be Deborah Kent's. And to note... It had been the family's practice to leave the porch light on, and the last one home turned it off. Belva, Deborah's mom, still has the porch light on at night, and she says, I'll never turn it off. As long as I'm here, I will never turn it off. That just kills me to this... It's still on. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
attend. Unfortunately for the 13 women that we just spoke about, uh, we're moving into a new year that they unfortunately don't get to celebrate as they would have liked. Nope. And we're going to talk about Karen Eileen Campbell, who was born September 20th, 1951 in Garden City, Michigan. And she was murdered on January 12th, 1975 near Aspen, Colorado. And Valerie McKay described Karen as an attractive and confident woman, a vibrant and young woman with a contagious laugh. She added that Karen had a warm side that can melt the coldest heart and drive men crazy. Mature, confident, and stubborn, Karen would go on to become a registered nurse, meeting Raymond Godowski, a cardiologist, who became the love of her life. And in January of 1975, she and her now fiancé Raymond and his two children were in Colorado on a combined medical conference and ski trip. They were to marry that April, and Karen hoped the trip would deepen her bond with his children. On January 12th, their first day at the Rocky Mountain Ski Resort, Karen cared for the children in the morning while Raymond attended a medical seminar. They all went skiing in the afternoon, then had dinner. Post-dinner, they enjoyed sitting in the hotel lobby and looked for something to read, recalling a magazine they had left up in their room. Being a good sport, Karen agreed to fetch it from their hotel room. She was observed leaving the elevator and walking toward the room by a group of guests on the second floor with whom she spoke. That magazine was found undisturbed. But Karen Campbell had been a monster in the hallway. The U-shaped building combined with winter snowdrifts and frosted windows were all factors that facilitated her abduction. Yep, just like that. And she was gone. One month later, attracted by circling vultures... A passerby found her nude and battered body protruding from a snowbank just three miles from the hotel. Forest animals had fed on Karen's body, and her identity was not known until an autopsy was completed. Cause of death was believed to be heavy blows to the head with an unknown instrument. One blow was so violent it dislodged a molar from her mouth. That's hard. That, that's hard. That is unbelievable. Her throat bore the markings of strangulation. Theodore Robert Bundy confessed to Karen's murder four days before his execution. And of this, her father, Robert Campbell, said, It's not important to me now. The thing I want back, I can't have. Yeah. Julia Lyle Cunningham was born in Colorado on January 10, 1949. And nicknamed Julie, she was living in Vail, working as a part-time ski instructor and at a local sporting goods store. She was heading out to meet her roommate at a bar a few blocks away from their apartment. Responsible and a good friend, Julie never showed up at the bar, which certainly raised some red flag. Julie was not the type to drift off and leave town without notice or good reason, and those who knew her were deeply concerned, and they wouldn't get answers for years. Fast forward in 1989, trying to stall his execution as always, Bundy told law enforcement that he came stumbling along on his fake crutches, saw Julie, and engaged in some small talk. He asked her for some help carrying his ski boots to his car, counting on her decency. He claimed to her that he had injured his leg skiing, which was a story that Julie was familiar with being a ski instructor. And as he had so many times before, as she put the crutches in the car for him, Ted hit her over the head, knocked her unconscious, pushed her into the car, and handcuffed her. She woke briefly frightened, asking what was this all about, begging him to spare her life. He continued driving out onto Interstate 70 into the desert, where he brutalized her and murdered her. Bundy admitted returning to her body after a month and burying it. In April, when winter had faded and the snow began to melt, 
she would return to commit necrophilia, then rebury her body. Her body has never been found, and the case technically remains unsolved, according to Vail Police Department. Just three weeks later, on April 6, 1975, it was a completely normal day for 24-year-old Denise Nicholson Oliverson. She was living with her roommate, Steen Romero, who some believe was her boyfriend. They'd been out shopping in the afternoon, and on coming home, Denise was planning on taking a bike ride over to visit her parents. Some would say that she and Steve had argued, but Steve said no, that wasn't the case. Denise set off on her yellow coast-to-coast 10-speed and headed towards the bridge that would take her into the crowded part of the city, and she was never seen again. Her bike and maroon sandals were found under the 5th Street Bridge, just a block from her home, by some railroad employees. Her family was shocked, dismayed, horrified. Denise had been born to Mr. and Mrs. Robert Nicholson, who welcomed their beautiful, dark-haired daughter on August 10, 1950. She grew up with her sister Renee in Grand Junction, Colorado, graduating from the local high school. Denise began to work at Dixon Incorporated as an assemblyer, and in September 1970, she married Joe Oliverson, an insurance salesman. Now, the marriage wouldn't last, and they divorced in March of 1972. Now, her ex-husband described Denise as gullible, but very independent. While Denise suffered from anxiety, it did not stop her from occasionally going off alone on bike rides because she never did get a driver's license. You can understand how you get nervous driving a car? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, so bike riding to her was a stress reduction activity, but it also kept her in good physical shape as well. Her close friend, Linda Pantuso, said she was really a great person, fun, eager to please. She did have some self-esteem problems, but she's not the only woman in the world to have self-esteem problems, and she did struggle to see her own self-worth. It's definitely very difficult sometimes, depending on what you're going through, to see some of those things. At least she had her bike rides. Definitely help her out. Getting out there and feeling that wind in your face, nothing Mm -hmm. like it. Denise had been missing for almost 10 months when an unsigned psychic friend letter was received by the police postmarked February 20th, 1976. The letter said that she had been kidnapped, raped, and murdered her body thrown into the river in Dubuque Canyon. Denise had suffered violence to her head by something steel or iron, and that her hands were bound by steel or iron when she was thrown into the river. An automobile was involved in the crime, and this is still from the letter, and the same letter predicted that her body would not be found for a very, very, very long time, if ever. It was a long way downstream from where it was thrown in. And now the police investigation into Ted Bunny's gas receipts... You remember the ones that Liz stole? For some reason, she decided to take those. Placed him in Grand Junction and on April 6th, the same day that Denise went missing. And he couldn't use his usual injury ruse, so exactly what he did remains unknown. Bundy would say he abducted her, killed her in his car near the Utah state line, and then dumped her body in the Colorado River. Definitely a risky quick kill for him, and her body has still not been recovered. I'd say that's pretty close to that. That letter that the psychic said had happened? It does sound pretty close. Depending on if what he said was true, even still it rings Ted Bundy. And he was known to write letters. But he did write letters. Robert Nicholson, Denise's father, said it's been a nightmare for 14 years. He's devastated too many families and manipulated the justice system into a three-ring circus. We're just happy he 
is for executing. Attack number 17 coming up. On July 31st, 1962, Lynette Culver was born to Edward Al and Carol Culver, the youngest of three children in Pocatello, Idaho. Nancy Jo was the older sister and Edward Jean, her younger brother, and they really loved that pesky little sister. Another sister, Marcia Kay, had died before Lynette's birth. So they lived in Washington State for Lynette's first few years, and in 1967, they returned to Idaho when she was about five years old. She loved swimming, was frequently joined by her cousins, and they were all very, very close. With her sister, Nancy Jo, Lynette had completed a 20-mile March of Dimes walkathon. And Nancy Jo remembered that while she was just wiped out after 20 miles and wanted a nap, Lynette insisted that they go get her free Big Mac. I want my free Big Mac, too. Dang. (laughs) I would probably be wanting to nap, too. So, in 1975, 12-year-old Lynette had a really loving, positive relationship with her family. The 7th grader was at Alameda Junior High School, and everything was going along really well. She was a good student, uh, but she had a few problems with truancy. It's been known to happen, right? Nancy Jo described her as fun-loving, shy, 12 going on 30, as are so many of the preteen girls, right? Yes. So on May 5th, Lynette went for lunch, and she boarded a bus at Hawthorne Junior High School and was bound for Fort Hall High School. And guess what? She was never seen again. Reports were filed, searches conducted. Carol Culver's rich chestnut-colored hair soon turned stark white. She went absolutely stark white. Shock does. Shock and grief. Al Culver would fly all over the United States. Every time there was a possible sighting of Lynette, he would go. And Uh Nancy Joe would keep the same phone number for, for years, just in case Lynette called. And on January 23rd, 1989, right before his execution, literally right before his execution, and again, keeps doing it, he would actually confess to luring Lynette, age 12, to his room at the Holiday Inn, where he raped her, drowned her in the bathtub, and then dumped her body into the Snake River. He is a pedophile. We all realize this, yes? I hope so. Yes. We we should all realize this. Yeah, he's... You're right. He's not this cute, handsome guy. And oh, he's just, no, he's a pedophile. He's a pedophilic monster. Pedophilic a word? It is now. (laughs) Yeah. He knew personal details, such as the family moved from one end of Pocatillo to the other, something only Lynette could have told him. And Bundy was executed on her mom's birthday. So Carol's birthday of what she said she felt this was a grim gift from God. And at the time, Edward Culver said, we've had 14 years of believing someone had done something like this. Tacking a name on it, knowing it was Bundy, doesn't really alter your emotions. Yeah. And in 2019, the family unveiled the memorial bench for Lynette with hopes that no other families would know this kind of loss. It is a reminder of Lynette's life and not her death. Nancy said, we are very blessed to have Lynette in our lives. I recognize that very much. And her dad would go on to say, she may have had the potential to be an Einstein. He may have deprived the world of something exceptional. And that's what Bundy did. He did deprive the world of many exceptionals and of many possibilities that could have been. Yep. 
So moving into June 1975, the Curtis family lived in Woods Cross, Utah. Athletic, competitive ninth grader Susan Curtis um, played on the girls' basketball team and was a star on the high school track team. In June 1975, she was a member of the LDS Church, and she was attending the Mormon Youth Conference at Brigham Young University with her sister. And on June 27th, after dinner, Susan decided to walk back to her dorm, which was like about a quarter of a mile away, because she had braces, and she wanted to go brush her teeth, which is something that a conscientious girl with braces would want to do. I had braces. I completely understand what she's saying. Especially if you had a piece of white bread at dinner. Exactly. And it would all get, oh, it's terrible. And these were the braces that were the big, heavy metal ones. They didn't have the plastic ones, so you had the big metal bands. Uh-huh. So she tells her roommate she's heading out, and that is the last time that anyone would see 15-year-old Susan Curtis. Seriously, 400 yards. That's one loop around a track. Yeah. If anyone's familiar with running a mile, that's one loop around the track. Her mom, Marilyn Curtis, would say that disappearance was particularly hard on Susan's sister, who wished she had gone with Susan when she left. Because, of course, if I'd gone with her, everything would have been all right. She's going to take that on herself. Uh, Poor girl. It would be 14 years before the family would get any information about what happened to Susan. Now, Ted Bundy had actually forgotten about Susan, and he's walking down the hall for his execution, pauses, and asks for a tape recorder to make this final confession about Susan Curtis, literally minutes before he's going to be put to death. He's so goddamn annoying. Marilyn Curtis found out about this from a friend who had heard it on the news. Bundy reiterated how he took a girl from the Brigham Young Provo campus. He killed her and buried her body south of Price, a town which was about 60 miles southeast. Shortly after confessing, law enforcement began searching the area and trying to locate Susan, but it was called off because this is January and it was really cold and freezing. But they had used a metal detector atop the snow, hoping to pick up her braces. How gruesome. And they... They were just, I know, they're just going to have to wait till spring and when the earth thawed. And unfortunately, Susan's body has still not been found. Moving forward to after Bundy's escape from prison and is making his way to Florida, we come to Margaret Bowman. She was born in Honolulu on January 6, 1957 to Jack and Ronell Bowman, who moved their family to St. Petersburg, Florida, when Jack retired from the Air Force in 1973. Margaret had a younger brother, Jackson, and they were very close. A childhood picture shows Margaret patting Jackson's head and looking very much like the protective older sister. And as a little girl, Margaret would sit in her father's lap and listen to him read Peter Rabbit. If he teased her and stopped mid-sentence, Margaret would recite the rest, having memorized the whole story. And reading was always a part of her life from the earliest years. At age 10, her grandparents gave her a copy of The Secret Garden, And she ended up hibernating in her room, totally engulfed in that story. And in high school, the social, fun, and loyal Margaret was the president of the French National Honor Society, a member of the drama, scuba, and tennis teams, and on the Civinettes, a group devoted to civic service. Clearly, she was a leader who believed in giving back to her community. She was incredibly considerate, 
calling home to let her dad know when she'd arrived and if she was traveling. When Margaret went to Florida State University, she majored in art history and ancient civilization, but with a business bent. Margaret's motivation was to pursue a career as an art buyer for major museums, and she wanted to make art more accessible to the many. That sentiment may be seen in her holding a position in the Student Senate. A good friend, Leanne Staples, described Margaret as lovely, very vogue, slightly sophisticated, and a classy dresser. Her namesake grandmother had belonged to Chi Omega, so it followed that Margaret had joined too. I think I would have liked her. Mm-hmm. I really do. So in Tallahassee on January 15th, 1978, Ted Bunny opened an improperly locked door and crept into the Chi Omega house. Having been pent up in a prison cell since his conviction for attacking Carol Durant in June 1976, until his escape in December 78, he'd been unable to act on his force to kill. It's believed that Bundy entered Margaret's room first, exploding in a rampage of uncontrolled rage. He violently bludgeoned her in the head as she slept, wrapping a nylon stocking around her neck and strangling her. Her legs were spread, so it's likely that she suffered a sexual assault. Margaret Elizabeth Bowman was nine days past her 21st birthday when Ted Bundy clubbed the life out of her sometime after 3 a.m. Jackson Bowman lost his big sister who protected him and taught him to play chess. In her hometown of St. Petersburg, St. Thomas Episcopal Church lost a faithful congregant who came every Sunday to pray. Keep in mind, this is not the first time that Bundy had crept into a house filled with college girls through an unlocked door. All right, remember, he felt comfortable on a college campus, so his first attack on Karen Sparks and then Linda Healy were in homes occupied by multiple people. And basement apartments. Yeah. I don't know if that's a Seattle thing, but basement apartments. Seems he liked that, too. In the days after the Chi Omega assault... The county sheriff told the press that Margaret did not wake up and never felt a thing, and we can only pray that that's the case. At at Chi Omega, he was out of control, on a spree, disorganized, killing with a cut log he found next to the house, an excellent weapon of opportunity. Bundy Bundy crept in and first encountered Margaret asleep in her bed. This beating strangulation was just a warm-up for this deranged monster, unleashed. Of Bundy's execution, Jack Bowman said, I didn't have the motivation of vengeance. I had a motivation for justice. I just wanted him punished. This wasn't hard for me. And former FBI profile Mark Staparek and forensic psychologist Catherine Ramsland completed a detailed study on spree killers in 2019. And they published the study in a book called Spree Killers, Practical Classifications for Law Enforcement and Criminology. In this, they identified seven categories of spree killers, who are different from serial killers. Serial killing is defined as killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. From Safrick and Ramsland, we've learned that generally spree killers are loners, alienated, roughly in their 20s, white males who commit intra-racial killings. So mostly white guys targeting white people. Intelligent, he's a disappointed underachiever who just hasn't really made anything of himself. A real case of failure to launch. So, Ted, 
Yeah. yeah. He's tormented by his failure and targets those who are achieving. Boss, co-worker, random stranger in a really nice car. Their rage is unplanned, unpredictable, and they often leave evidence, even their own names. They tend to act in a shorter interval of time, and there's no great master plan. They're very disorganized. Whether or not he'll survive or won't hasn't really come up in his thinking. Here's an example. In planning to kidnap someone, Ted used a fake name signing into a hotel, but used his real license plate. What? He did that? Yeah. That's stupid. That's because he's not this brilliant, genius serial killer that we all think he is. He's not Hannibal Lecter. He wishes he was Hannibal Lecter. No. Ted is a serial killer. There's no question about that. Yet after being caged for years, he is ready to go off, to explode. And he does. He doesn't pick one victim. He doesn't pick two, as he has in the past. He's going to go after six in one night, and he's going to start with Margaret Bowman. All right, so briefly, very briefly, the types of our spree killers here. The first type is your anger revenge guy. They're pissy, they go after targets of opportunity, and they're seeking revenge. Your second guy is your mission-oriented guy. They can be psychotic, they're delusional, they act on these delusions like the vampire killer. Maybe you've heard of him. Richard Trenton Chase, he thought he had to drink blood to live, and he just randomly butchered people who happened to leave their doors unlocked. That's a story we'll have to read a book on him. You might have the non-psychotics who go after, like, for example, interracial couples because they're immoral and destroying the country. They just get these ideas in their head. They have a mission. They're on a mission. The mentally ill. Now, they can have a true dysfunction. They can hear voices like the paranoid schizophrenic. But remember, only a very tiny percentage of the mentally ill are actually dangerous. The robbery thrill killers. They want stuff. They're after your stuff. And they are energized by the game. And they are playing it. And they enact this. The movement in tight places. These are your high school shooters. They're on a college campus, in an office building. They walk through and they shoot everybody that they run into. These are the people that scare us to death. You can have the crossover mixed. They start as one type and they shift into another type during the spree. And then we come to desperation. This is where Ted Bundy is during these final weeks on the lamb. He's irrational. He is disorganized. There's very little planning in what he's doing. These desperate spree killers are in need. They have little to lose at this point. They'll steal cars, and we know that Ted does this. He's going to steal a white van. He's going to steal a Volkswagen. They kill people they know or randomly. They enter homes, and they're not robbing at all. We know Chi Omega is certainly a home for these women. He has rooms of victims to attack at Chi Omega, He goes room after room after room, and he can just let that inner beast out of the cage to run without restraint. He is an animal hunting prey to kill, and it's just that simple. And he lashes out wildly, and he is stunningly successful. And frankly, enough of Theodore Robert Bundy, and let's talk about the women. The women he took from us. And after Margaret Bowman, he goes on to attack Lisa Levy. And Lisa Levy was the daughter of Henny and Sam Levy, 
born on February 1st, 1957, and she was just a happy, smiling baby. Her parents would unfortunately divorce when she was eight, and she remained in St. Petersburg with her mother and her brother, Fred. Her father moved to Sarasota, but she would spend time with him throughout her life. Lisa was described as always laughing and a very positive person by her high school friend, Joanne Schultz. She also put her artistic eye to work as a yearbook staffer for the Dixie legend at Dixie Hollands High. A responsible and frugal teen, Lisa worked at the colony shop at the Tyrone Square Mall during summers and holidays. She continued to work at a Tallahassee fashion store while attending college, paying her tuition herself. Music was a part of Lisa's life, and she enjoyed playing the flute in the school band. She also learned to twirl the baton from Eileen Romaine, who said she was a super kid and that she loved to twirl. Friend Nancy Collier recalled the time when Lisa got her braces off, and all the majorettes pretended not to notice as a silly, fun memory of Lisa. She had planned to use her twirling skills and become a majorette at FSU, but did not have time where her studies from fashion merchandising took most of her attention. Her friends described her as athletic, religious, bright, and full of life. Part of congregation B'nai Israel, her rabbi Jacob Lesky recalled the young woman he'd known for a decade as determined and lovable. And best friend Johnny Van Fleet said she was a beautiful girl in every way. Her death has given me the inspiration for what I want to do in my life. So it was learned long after Lisa's death that that night on Chi Omega, after murdering Margaret Bowman, Bundy climbed on top of Lisa, bashed in her skull, and rendered her unconscious. In an animalistic frenzy, he bit her, chewed off one of her nipples as he raped and strangled her to death. Bundy ended the encounter by shoving a bottle of Aquanet up her vagina. She died before she reached the hospital. Of his daughter's death, Sam Levy said, I don't blame anyone. That's our destiny, and we can't change anything about it. I believe in reincarnation, and where she's going is beautiful, and her soul is going to make a good transition. Both murders were ruthless and brutal, just like every other murder carried out by Ted Bundy. He needed brutality to satisfy his perversion, so we need to remember these women. We need to let go of Bundy and remember the women he took from us. So now we're up to the 21st attack in February of 1978. Three weeks after the assault on Chi Omega, another nightmare began in Lake City, Florida. On February 9th, 1978, the weather was drizzly and dreary. Lake City Junior High School 7th grader Lisa Little was a good friend of pretty and shy 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. The girls had a meet-up spot where they'd go to when they walked to class, and Lisa would later say, I went to our designated spot to go to class, and she wasn't there. It turned out no one knew where Kimberly was. Reported missing, the police canvassed students and adults alike. Witnesses saw Ted Bundy leading a visibly upset Kimberly to a white van. They'd assumed it was a father taking his preteen daughter out of school. The community was in an uproar, enduring for eight weeks while Kim was missing. On October 28, 1965, Kimberly Diane Leach came into the world bringing joy to Tom and Frida Leach and older brother Michael. Kimberly had just been elected first runner-up Valentine Queen by her classmate. She loved school and wasn't a kid to skip or leave campus, said classmate Sherry Robert McKinley. I mean, we were 12 
and she was very shy. To her family's anguish, Kimberly's body was located on April 7, 1978, in an abandoned hog pen near the Suwannee River State Park. The 12-year-old child was found on her stomach, naked from the neck down, with her sweater pulled up and around her neck. Her arm was pinned beneath her body in an unnatural position, which indicated to the medical examiner, Dr. Peter Lipkovic, that Kim likely died during intercourse. Ted Bunny and slit her throat while raping her from behind. Kim's close friend, Ruby Bedenbaugh, hopes that people will recall the beautiful young girl that would have done great things had she not crossed paths with this monster. There's a void that will always remain. Where would Kim be today? The world missed out on a great soul. Lisa Little also described her as the angel that was with us, that shared her life with us, her smiles with us, her hopes and dreams with us. I would like for people to remember that she is who needs to be remembered and not him. And this concludes our second cast for The Phantom Prince by Elizabeth Kendall, where we remember the women who were lost to their families, their loved ones, and all of us. We pray we did them justice in remembering them as the individuals they were and not merely victims of a serial killer, not statistics or names in a list at the end of a documentary. It is our hope that we remember these women and sadly two children who were gifted and unique individuals. We have tried to recall who is upbeat, funny, athletic, shy, kind, compassionate, sophisticated, musical, optimistic, poetic, free-spirited, introverted, extroverted, a wiggle worm, a bookworm, religious, enthusiastic, and those who were mentors, singers, swimmers, leaders, twirlers, healers, bikers, skiers, daughters, sisters, and had such potential that humanity did not get a chance to appreciate. If you can match any names to any of those descriptors, I think we did our job at least to some extent, and we hope you can. We didn't go into detail on Kathy Kleiner, Karen Chandler, or Cheryl Thomas, who survived the night at Chi Omega. They have recently been interviewed on 48 Hours, and they can tell their story far better than Tara and I can tell it. So I refer 48 Hours to hear their stories, because they're survivors, and they can tell their stories. And we have to thank Mark for his assistance in researching Mark is a member of our Real True Crime Book Club and an invaluable researcher for us, a truly dedicated murder bookie. Again, thank you, Mark, for your time, dedication, and grist. You're wonderful to help us out. And if you want to get a head start on our next book, which we'll be featuring in our May trilogy, pick up your copy of The Good Nurse, a true story of medicine, madness, and murder by Charles Graber. Stephen King described it in one word, chilling. Charlie Cullen was a trusted medical professional tasked with upholding an ethical responsibility for those entrusted into his care. However, he had a dark side. And for a career that spanned 16 years across nine hospitals, 
Charles Cullen was said to have been responsible for the deaths of 400 people. Join us as we read through Charles Graeber's chilling, rhythmic, meticulously crafted book after years of research, which will keep you reading well into the night to reach the penultimate conclusion, just when you thought you didn't like hospitals. You're definitely not going to look at them the same way again. Thank you so very much for listening to us today. We certainly hope that Jill and I did the women in this story justice. Oh, I hope so. I think we did. I really hope we did. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or shoot us an email at jillandtara at com. We'd be happy to hear from you and incorporate your thoughts and our readings into our show. And follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. And let our episodes just slide right into your feed. And if you can, again, leave us a five-star review. Every little thing you do helps us to keep going further. And until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Stay safe.